All right, we are in Revelation chapter 3 tonight, and let's go to verse 7. When you get there, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus speaking through the Apostle John says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say that they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold thou fast which thou hast, uh, that no man take thy crown. He says in verse 12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto you. The churches. Let's bow once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings upon the text. Lord, guide, direct me as I speak. Help me to preach truth and use this lesson tonight, this message, for your honor and glory. God, we pray for uh, just the convicting power of your spirit to be upon each heart here this evening. Bring encouragement, correction, uh, as you see fit. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been going through the uh, seven churches of Asia, and this is the sixth church that we've come to, is the church of Philadelphia. And after considering all the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches to this point, uh, it's kind of refreshing, gives us kind of a break uh, to find a church that was actually doing things right. And uh, God was pleased with them. It helps us to know that he's not just being overly critical, that it is possible to please him. You know, it is possible uh, to live up to his standards, but of course that can only be done, as we talked about this morning, through the power of the, the Spirit. And uh, But we see a church here, there's another one, uh, the church at Sardis was also a church that Jesus commended. He did have some problems with some that were there, but uh, for the most part, uh, that was a church that he was pleased with. But really, as we look through the letter that he writes to Philadelphia, uh, there's not one word of correction that we can find here, or one word of rebuke that Jesus has for this church, which leads me to believe that he was truly pleased with the church of Philadelphia. Now, we've definitely seen all the things that a church can do wrong. We've talked about those, and we've, uh, we've had our toes bashed every week with those uh, for quite some time. we got one more of those coming up, by the way, uh, the church at Laodicea. Uh, but let's take some time to find out what this church was doing right. And let's consider our church, let's consider Calvary, and, and uh, let's ask ourselves the question tonight, uh, can, can the same things be said of us? If Jesus was to write to us, would he find these same things uh, going correctly in our church? And so, let's go ahead and look at what Jesus says about the church at Philadelphia. Now, the first thing we find in these verses is a revelation of Jesus in verse 7. 
Now, he says in verse 7, remember that uh, as we looked over at chapter 1, Jesus gave, there was a description given of Jesus. And remember, he addresses each of these churches and, and refers somehow back to who he is and how he was described in chapter 1. But he says in verse 7, Unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Now as we look at these verses, we must keep in mind that this is the purpose of the entire book of Revelation to unveil the power and the person of Jesus Christ to his churches. As we look at the book of Revelation, this isn't the revelation of the end times. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's, I think it's fitting that in every address of these churches, he reveals just a little bit more about who he is and, uh, and of course, his purposes. And so we find the very same thing here in verse 7. Now, there were some specific things about himself that each church needed to understand individually. And then throughout the rest of the book, he would continue to take them deeper and deeper behind the curtain to reveal more about who he is. And uh, and so let's keep that in mind, not only as we finish up these last couple letters to the churches, but even as we dig into the rest of the book of Revelation as well. We, We must keep Christ as the central focus of the book of Revelation. Now, the more that Jesus is revealed to us, the more that we're going to understand about ourselves and about our purpose here. Now, listen, I, I know that I say a lot of things like this, but I think there's a point in everybody's life where we want to start, we want to start figuring out what our purpose in life is. You know, and people go out to discover themselves. And I want to tell you, you don't need to climb Mount Everest to find out who you are. You, know, you don't need to hike across the U.S., to find out who you are, what your, you know, what your purpose is here on earth. If you want to know more about yourself and more about your purpose and more about what God intends for you, you need to learn more about Jesus. That's, that's where we have to go. The more we know Jesus and the more we know of Jesus, the more we discover of our true purpose here. Now, sin is what has caused that separation. Sin is what has brought in that confusion because sin and the nature of sin wants to make everything about us. But please understand, everything is not about you. And everything is not about me. But everything is made by and for Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if we want to know more about what God is for us as a person or as a church or whatever, then our focus needs to be on Christ. We need to know more of Him. And so Jesus is revealing more and more of Himself to these churches. Now, I want you to get this. There are times that He corrects some churches. He says these things are going wrong. But He always starts out every single time with giving them exactly what they need. They needed to know more of Him before they could fix what was wrong with them. And so that's what we find in each of these letters. And I I hope that by the time we get through the book of Revelation, that we're going to have just a deeper understanding of who Christ is. Now, Jesus revealed four things here about himself to this church. And we find those in verse 7. And I just want to take some time to look through what he says about himself to the church of Philadelphia. And the first thing we find about him is that he is holy. Look at verse 7. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy. Now who of us could raise our hands tonight and say with a pure heart, I am holy. None of us could, could we? 
But Jesus says, the one who is speaking this, the one who is saying these things to you, is one who is holy. The truth of his holiness itself was not a new revelation. We know that Christ is holy, but as a reminder of, uh, of everything that is implied there, it implies all sorts of truth. The fact that he is holy makes him, number one, it makes him equal with God. It gives him the right to judge the churches. And someone may look at these letters and say, well, what right did Jesus have to say this about this church, to correct that church, or to compliment another church? What right did he have? The right that he had is that he is holy God. And he has authority over each and every one of these churches. He has authority over this church. It gives him the authority to to deliver both recompense and reward because he is a holy judge. It's also a reminder that all of his actions are righteous. That everything he does is good. That everything he says is right. That he is completely holy, he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, not only do we find that he is holy, but we find that he is true. If you look with me in verse 7 once again, it says, uh, not only these things saith he that is holy, but also the one who says this is true. It says, uh, he that is true. Several religions, if you go back and look through the city of Philadelphia, there were several several religions, uh, just like these other cities that uh, were established there in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, The people there worshipped all kinds of gods. And uh, each one of those religions, each one of those claimed to be right. So how could the church there in Philadelphia, how could they know that they were teaching what was right? How could they know that they were believing the right things? Because Jesus says, I am he that is true. In other words, the way you know that you are that what you believe is true is when you level it up or when you... Uh, make it, you know, uh, compare it to what I am telling you when you uh, size it up to my truth. And so he says, I am the one that is true. We also see that he is rich in verse 7. It says, he that has the key of David. Now the keys of David, the best that I could tell is that uh, partly it, it, it talks about his access of riches, that he has access to everything that is needed. Now we're going to find that this, this church was poor and this church was small, but he says, I have the keys of David, but it also reminds us that he is the king. And as king, he does have access to all riches that are needed to carry out his kingdom purposes. And so he says, uh, we find here that he is rich. He has the keys of David and that he is able. And we find that at the end of verse 7. It says uh, he, he introduces himself as the one that opens and no man shuts and the one that shuts and no man's open. So let me put that in a different way. When he opens a door, no man can shut it. And when he closes a door, no man can open it. Now, he, d- he doesn't say door here, but he is going to say something about a door in the next verse. And so he says, uh, I'm the one who has the authority and the power that when I open a door, no man, no one is able to shut that door. And if I shut it, if I seal it and lock it, no man can open it. He is God and king. He has the ability to open doors and shut doors that no one else can. When he opens a door... Uh, Again, no one can shut it. When he shuts it, no one can open it. Now, we talked about tonight 
and experiencing God. I challenge you with the thought that as we go through this, we begin learning how to listen to God, that God may say some things to us. And again, we're not talking about hearing some audible voice from heaven. What we are saying is that we believe the Holy Spirit is present, and we believe that the Holy Spirit can lead and direct a church specifically. Do you believe that tonight? And as we are studying through this and, and we become more sensitive to knowing how to listen to the Spirit of God, that He may very well tell us to do something. And we're going to learn that any assignment from God is always God-sized. All right? Meaning that when He gives an assignment, it usually is something that we would never be able to accomplish on our own. And so when he gives those God-sized assignments, then we come to a crisis of faith where we're going to have to decide whether or not we believe that he can do this. And so let's say that that God does lead us to do something. He leads us to do something that's God-sized, that that can only be accomplished through him and his power. Then we're going to have to go back and we're going to have to decide that we really believe in our hearts that He he is the one who can open doors that no other man can open. And no other man could shut. And he is the one that could shut a door that no one else can open. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that when he tells us or he leads us in what needs to do, our job is not to sit back and say, we can't do that. That we're not, back, we're not to sit back and say, oh, that's impossible. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough this or that. That, that, that will never fly. People are not going to listen. People are not going to respond to this. We, don't, we can't say that. Because if He leads us to do it, then He's going to open the door. And if He opens the door, please understand, the government, Satan, no one can shut that door if He opens it. And if He shuts the door on something, we couldn't pry it open if we tried. So we have to trust that He is the one who is able uh, both to lead and to carry out whatever it is that He intends to do. What a solemn reminder that He is Lord, that this is His church, and that He can do what He wants with it. Now, I want us to look at the next thing, and that is the recognition of Philadelphia. He recognizes them uh, for some things in verse 8. Number one, He says, I know thy works. Now, He says this to every single church, and this is where uh, every other time we've read this, we kind of shudder a little bit, like... (laughs) Oh, man, I don't want to even know what's coming next. He says, I know thy works. But look at what he says about them. He says, on the basis of him knowing their works, he says, I have set before you an open door. Now, when we connect that to what he just said, that's a big deal, right? Because he just introduces himself as the one who can open a door, the one who can shut a door. And he says, I have presented before you an open door. Door, I have opened a door unto you on the basis of what you have been doing. He says, look at this, and no man can shut it. For you have had a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. I want you to know some things about the church in Philadelphia. The first thing I want you to know is that they were weak in number. This was a small congregation of believers. Unlike some of the other churches, the Church of Philadelphia was uh, indeed a small congregation. They, 
probably didn't have the elaborate ministries or the huge budgets that Ephesus had or, or the manpower to have those ministries going on. They were weak in number. They were weak in resources. Unlike the larger churches that Jesus addressed, we find that he was pleased with them in the work that they had been doing. Now, that's not to say that God condemns big churches and glorifies small churches. But what's to say is that the size of a church does not measure its success as a church. The size of a church is not the measure of whether God is happy with that church or not. The type of building they have. I'm going to tell you, you go to another country, you go places where they still don't have air conditioning. And it may just be a small congregation, but that may be the best church on the planet as far as God's eyes are concerned. The size of a church, what it has, what, what it contains there, and monetary value, all those things, has nothing to do with the success of a church. It's not based upon numbers. It's not based upon finances or how many people they have on staff. And listen, I, again, I'm not knocking churches that have huge budgets or huge staff. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that at all. If they have uh, all kinds of pastors and they have pastors this and that, some of them, you can go through the website, and I mean, they've got more employees than the state does. Uh, uh, it seems like, you know what I mean, just scrolling down through all these pastors, all these people working, uh, things like that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that's not the measure of a church success is what I'm saying. I like it when people come up and they say, are you the senior pastor? I say, yes, I am. I'm also the associate pastor, the youth pastor, and uh, any other kind of pastor that you can think of. I am the pastor. <laughs> Unlike the larger churches that Jesus had addressed, again, he was pleased with them. He was pleased with the work that they had been doing. Now, they may have been weak in some areas, but they were strong in the areas that count. They were strong in the right things. They were sound in the truth. If you look at verse 8, he says, number one, you've had a little strength. He says, second of all, you have kept my word. They made the Word of God the complete authority for everything that they taught and believed. Now listen, I want to ask you tonight. Is this the complete authority for everything that we teach and believe? And don't get upset with me when I ask you this, but do we teach or do we preach Baptist doctrines or do we... Teach and preach Bible doctrines. <laughs> it, it better be Bible doctrines, right? We believe what the Word of God says. And if the Word of God says that something needs to be fixed, or the Word of God says that something's being done right, then that's how we measure what truth is. Not by what some man has said, not by what some preacher has said, but according to the Word of God and not what a board of preachers has said. As we have discussed earlier, the truth is something that is becoming less and less important to people, but it is very important to the Lord. Because some of these other churches have strayed from the truth, but He says, I have set an open door before you because you have kept my Word. I want, I want to make something very clear When he says you have kept my word, and not only indicates that they were teaching the right things, but they were doing the right things as well. Not just that they were believing the right doctrines, but that they were practicing what they believed as well. They were practicing the things that he had taught them. 
The church there in Philadelphia was located in a city that had just as many temptations and just as many false religions as the rest, but they remained pure from sin and would not compromise with false beliefs. Then we say that that they were powerful in evangelism in verse 8. He says there, uh, we're looking at the the last section there in verse 8. He says, you have had little strength, number one. You have kept my word. And look at this, and you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. Now listen, the church of Philadelphia may have been small, but they had a heart for their community. They had a heart for the lost. They were not ashamed of Jesus' name, whether it was standing up to their persecutors or witnessing to their neighbors. In any sense, in any situation they had been put in, they were not denying the name of Christ. I wonder how many Jesus could say that to today. How often have we been in situations where we could have given glory to God? We could have pronounced the name of Jesus or professed and proclaimed the name of Jesus. And yet we kept our mouths shut. How many times have we had opportunities, whether it be in the workplace or the marketplace or wherever it is, to witness to someone, but we chose not to because we might get in trouble or because this or that might happen. Unless we have to be wise in what we do, but at the same time we cannot be ashamed of the name of Christ. Matter of fact, I... See a place in the Bible where Jesus says that, um, that if we are ashamed of Him, if we deny His name, that He'll deny ours as well. It's a powerful statement. We see that this church was weak in number, but they were sound in truth and they were powerful in evangelism. Can we say the same for our church today? Could Jesus say those things about us? We see the rewards of faithfulness in verses 9 and 10. Now the first thing that I want to see here, we actually are going to back up to verse 8. But we find first of all that he was going to bless their work because of how they had been faithful in these areas. He says uh, in verse 8, he says, I know thy works. And again, he says, behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. Because the church had been so faithful to Jesus, even in their weakness, even though they were small and frail, the Lord had set an open door before them. Now, who knows how long they had faithfully and willingly served him with little results. But now there will be fruit for their labors. I'm going to tell you, I'm a terrible gardener. I'm going to tell you why I'm a terrible gardener. I'm a terrible gardener because I can plant something and I can water it. And if there's not fruit on it the next week, then I'm already bored. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I got better things to do, you know. Keep coming out there and looking at it, doctoring it, and all this like, cultivating and all this other stuff, and I just give up too easy. <laughs> you know, I just I don't have the patience to be a gardener. I guess if I was really hungry, I'd have to learn the patience to be a good gardener. But the point is, I think that's where churches get sometimes is that we go out and we sow the seed. Maybe we come back and water it and we pray over it, and, and maybe there's months or maybe there's years that go by. 
And it just seems like a dry season. It just seems like this is unfruitful. And many churches, I think, just throw their hands up. They get, they get tired. They get exhausted, bitter, or whatever it may be. And they just say, what's the use? They throw their hands up. And then they never get to reap the fruits of what God has been doing in the background. This church, there is no telling how long they had been weak. This was a struggle for them every week. Maybe even just to meet and have worship services. Maybe even just to pronounce the name of Jesus in their community. It was a struggle for them. They were weak, but they were faithful. And Jesus says, I know your works. I see what you've been doing. And because of this, I am going to set before you an open door. And listen, no man is going to be able to shut it. Amen. What things have we been doing? Maybe we're just about willing to give up on. Maybe we've just got to a point where we say, what's the use? Why keep going on? No, you can't do that. Because the fruit is not up to you. The fruit is something that God does. We plant the seed. We water, but God is the one who gives the increase. So if you're not seeing fruit in your labor, just keep working. Just keep planting. Just keep cultivating. Just keep watering. But you let God give the increase and you wait until He does. And I think that's kind of the principle that Jesus uh, is committing them for here is that they had not given up. They were weak, but they weren't failing. That they were continuing to keep the Word of God and to do the, uh, the, you know, to practice those truths. And of course, they were not denying His name. And so He sits before them an open door. He showed His approval. If you look at verse 9, He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which evidently were some persecutors. They were some hecklers there in their community. He says, Which say that they are Jews and are not, but do lie. He says, Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. And to know that I have loved thee. Now I don't know what this synagogue of Satan was. But if I had to make a guess. And like I told you a couple weeks ago. I'm starting to think my guess is as good as anybody else's. <laughs> but if I had to make a guess. This was a group of Jewish people. Who, who had just gotten so legalistic. And so hateful. Towards these Christians. And, and were persecuting them. And God's recognizing that although they say that they're Jews. They're really not. He says, I'm going to show them that I have loved you. This formerly pagan group of believers. This Gentile church. He says, I'm going to show them that I have loved you. I'm going to pour my blessings out upon you. And they're going to see it. His approval will be made public before all. And we see in verse 10 that he would return unto them. If you look at verse 10, he says, Behold, thou hast kept the word of my patience. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which can also be translated as the hour of tribulation, uh, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now listen, I'm not going to go where, where some will go with this. It is an interesting thought that you know, he says, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. Some people want to make this the Great Tribulation, but uh, we really, I don't really see the Great Tribulation here necessarily in this verse. But what he's saying is, is that uh, he's going to keep them from an, hour, from an hour of great tribulation that they may uh, be going through as a church. He says, I'm going to prevent you, I'm going to protect you through that. He says, uh, and he says, we shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. 
So there is the possibility that it could be talked about, but I, I don't want to make any definite statements there. We just need to keep our mind open to how God may reveal more of these things as we go along through Revelation. But I think it is interesting that he tells this uh, to the church at Philadelphia there. The people of this church obviously have been long gone today. But I believe that it's a promise to every church that he is coming. That he's coming quickly, he's coming shortly. And we need to be prepared for that. Jesus issued a warning to the church in Philadelphia. In verse 11 he says, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which you have, that no man will take your crown. He says, He that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and shall go no more uh, out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of that city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And he says in verse 13, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He says here, I will come suddenly upon you. He told them to hold steady and continue in the way that they were going. In other words, he says, get ready, I'm coming back. I'm going to tell you, we are inching closer and closer to that, that day ourselves. We need to be watching what's going on. Number one, in the natural world around us, in our planet, and see what's happening. Maybe there's some travail that's going on in our world. We need to be paying attention to those things. We need to be watching what's going on in the political world around us, in the kingdoms of this world, in the nations. See what's going on. See what's going on spiritually in the world around us. And I'll tell you, if you start looking at all three of those things, what that tells me is that we are being propelled closer and closer to the return of Christ. And we need to be ready for this. We need to have our hearts and our minds prepared. And listen, if Jesus shows up tonight, if He shows up tomorrow or next week, whatever that may be, I don't want Him to look at our church and say, I have somewhat against you. I want us to have a good report as a church. I want us to be a church that He's pleased with. A church that is making Him happy. A church that's doing His will. I want us to pray tonight that God would help us to be that church. That when He returns, if we're still here, that we'll be doing all that we can to follow Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, To keep His word and not to deny His name. And although we may be weak, that we'll have the right things. We'll be strong in the right things. That'll be pleasing unto Him.